The only way you overcome fear is to do what you are terrified of. Welcome to season two of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. And welcome back to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis with my co-host Ben Prong. G'day, Tim. G'day, Ben. How are you doing? I'm okay. You're just okay. No, I'm pretty good. Pretty good? Just pretty good? Actually, I'm I'm really going pretty well now that you and I know you don't care, <laughs> but now that you ask, um, in a perverse way, this little lockdown period has been quite interesting. I, I think I've recentered, you know, a bit more time with family, thinking about some really crunchy professional problems through our consulting, bit of fizz, getting a bit more regular with some of that. Mm. Life's all right. You're right. I'm not interested. But I am interested in Kate (laughs) Bacher, who is our guest today, Ben. And she's a 15-year performance psychologist, also a clinical psychologist. She continues to work with elite sporting teams, our corporate leaders, some mob called Australian Special Forces, and also on reality TV. She's done operational work in Afghanistan and East Timor and leads an organisation called Elysium High Performance. She's involved with CrossFit and changing people's thinking about approaching CrossFit, but she's not a CrossFitter, Ben. Yeah, I found that interesting. What she is, though, is a pretty accomplished rock climber, pretty accomplished adventurer, and a pretty amazing person. We're going to talk with her about some of her experiences uh, indoors and outdoors, her time in the Australian Defence Force, where she, she served in places like Afghanistan and East Timor, and also about some pretty interesting choices in footwear. Mm, She also served in South Africa for a few years where she was the resident psych on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. And we'll get some insights on that in the show. Anything else? Yeah, well, she's currently doing some incredible work with an organisation called Backpacker Medics, um, which is is listed as a platform for paramedics and other pre-hospital workers to engage with the world of humanitarian work. And some fascinating discussion about the application of both medical and psychological intervention in an austere environment and, and how that differs and some of the methodologies that she uses to help large groups of people uh, deal with pretty much some of the most traumatic stuff you can imagine. Including during the Rohingya crisis on uh, the yeah. border between Bangladesh and Myanmar. Myanmar. Yeah. Sounds let's, good. Let's get on with the show then. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Unforgiving 60. I'm Ben Pronk and I'm in the studio with Tim Curtis. G'day, Tim. Hello, Ben. And we are joined by the marvels of modern technology with Dr. Kate Bacher. Kate, how are you? I'm well, thanks, guys. How are you? Pretty good. All things considered, we're, we're tracking along pretty well in this novel age of lockdowns and pandemics. Ben's a bit too close to me, though. Can you? <laughs> like another state. Tim carries a ruler around to, to prod me into the appropriate social distance. 30 meter tape measure. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Kate, um, we're pretty interested in, in talking about um, 
all things sort of coronavirus, um, and in particular, I'm really interested in exploring your thoughts on on how this is going to impact uh, societies outside of our own. But before we get into that, could we start by learning a little bit more about you? Sure. I hmm. It's always hard when you're trying to give someone a history. But basically, I was born and grew up in Sydney. Um, my mother's Scottish. My father is demi-American. Um, they have very interesting influences on both myself and my brother. Now, I went to an all-girls school for 13 years, which is quite an experience. Um, and then I began university. Um, no, actually, I went on a gap year and then I began university and after a couple of years of studying psychology, I realised I've always loved the outdoors, um, mm. always loved climbing, always sort of loved exploring, all that sort of stuff. Um, but I realised that I was actually just understimulated. And I mean that in a kind of, I needed something to push me and to push me out of my comfort zone. Everything was going well. My studies were going well. My part-time job was going well. You know, really good friends, really good family, all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, but I wasn't... I was just unfulfilled. So I joined the Army Reserve. I didn't really know what to expect, uh, having having been to an all-girls school for a long time. Um, and I loved it. And I think I loved it because it pushed me out of my comfort zone in every way. And, you know, I loved it and I hated it in almost equal measures. But something about it <laughs> kept me in there. So I kind of figure I must have loved it a little bit more than... A little bit, yeah. <laughs> just tip the scales a little bit. Hmm. Um and so that, I think, actually just changed the trajectory of my whole future, mainly because I saw a different, I mean, as you guys know, sort of alternate universe in the military, um, but you're exposed to different people, places, values, lessons, perspectives, things that you actually can't even imagine until you're a part of it. Hmm. And so I joined the reserves and then eventually finished my psych degree. I was doing, <laughs> I started as a driver and then I did my officer training, again, mainly because I love running around, <clears throat> excuse me. And I realized that as a female at that time, the only chance that I was gonna have to run around in the bush outfield was gonna be through training rather than um, any yeah. actual and so I finished that and realised then that I could combine psychology and the military. And by that stage, I understood the military system a little bit. And I knew that I could be in for three years. I could get my licence to practice as a site because at that stage you had to be, um, you had to do your honours degree and then either do a clinical, either do a master's or do a two-year clinical internship. And the, the military offered that. So mm -hmm. that's the direction that I went following I was I was in for a number of years and then I left to complete a clinical doctorate and the reason that I did that was because it meant it was uh, I, I could go and work overseas basically anywhere um, and also because the goalposts within psychology continue to change but it also enabled me whereas uh, there were some limitations on being just a registered psychologist at that time um, in terms of professional opportunities and things. And so I thought if I can get a couple of extra 
uh, credits behind me, then it opens up the door, not so much to jobs that I want, but to the capacity to create the jobs that I want and also have some credibility behind that while I yeah. do. Um, and so I did. So that was, you know, throughout that time, throughout the doctorate, I did about 16 different types of psychology jobs, very few of which were actually psychology related. Um, <laughs> but a lot of things were working in organisations and working with systems. There was a lot of, a lot of trauma work, um, which ultimately became my clinical specialty. Um, and what I really learned and what I'd taken from the army was that we were, we as humans are part of, you know, part of something bigger. We're part of a situation. What you're taught in clinical psychology is to treat the person who is sitting directly in front of you. So I came at it from a completely, a very different perspective where I thought the person in front of me is only one part of mm. what's going on. And so that as well, and that was, that was also because in the military as a psychologist, you're always taking into account the context. You know, your client is the military. It's not the person in front of you. You treat mm. them in order for them to be able to perform better at their job, you know, whatever that job happens to be. And so that has then allowed me to create a whole lot of uh, training modules and academic kind of systems and uh, joint organisations where being a psychologist, being a clinical psychologist would be useful but ultimately not valuating, whereas mm. kind of my background, because I take into account the context a lot and, and that makes up the biggest picture, it's all about situation management and understanding human behaviour within a particular context. That sort of... That sort of led me to where I am now. And so when you say context, are you talking uh, the environment or the social group in which the, the individual finds themselves or little from column A, little from column B? All of the above. So they're always part of a group and yep. that is always part of a physical environment. So, for example, you might, what's the best way to explain it? Recently, so last year, I was working with a company called Survive First Aid. Um, and you'll hear me talk about the guys in this organisation a fair bit because they're also the ones from Backpack Medics, who, and some of whom are also ex-military. But psychological first aid has been around for a long time, or mental health first aid has been around for a long time. But what it's contingent on, it's basically like, it's like physical first aid, but, you know, if something goes wrong mentally, what do you do? In this, what do you do? Now, all the courses at the moment are... Uh, quite useful but they're very one-dimensional insofar as they basically require you to know the people know know the person who's in distress and also be in an urban environment that has resources uh, that can provide them support right so that to me and given the fact that i've most of my work has been in very strange environments um, mm. whether it's been military or working in i worked in reality tv for a while so i was kind of overseas and doing that for a bit um, and also with the disaster response stuff. What I realised is that in order for people, not so much me as a psychologist, but in order for the rest of the team to be able to cope and, and uh, provide psychological first aid, you actually have to take into account the rest of the group. How is the person, how is that person's distress impacting the rest of the group? Because, well, and how is it impacting the task or the mission? And actually, where are you located? Because you're, if you're located halfway up in Everest, that's very different than if you're located in a meeting room in Sydney or in Perth. 
So we, we created sort of a model and a system in and around uh, how to assess the overall person and the group in the environment that they're in and then action plans accordingly and teach the skills in and around those at, in and around that whole process. And where have you seen uh, the applications of this? You've, um, we've seen um, some amazing stuff and there's some great stuff online of uh, some of your adventure work and, and certainly trekking and, and mountaineering applications, but clearly wider applications than that for a concept like the one you've developed. Hmm. Um, one of the ones that is, I think is probably most salient is the humanitarian and disaster response work. Um, so my most, I work in an organisation called Backpack Medics, but one of our probably biggest operations was a couple of years ago during the Rohingya crisis where uh, the, the, basically it was a textbook genocide over in Myanmar um, and hundreds of thousands of Rohingya refugees crossed the border. Now, there was a lot of physical trauma that was involved. There was a lot of psychological trauma and there was, you know, they'd arrived in a country that didn't have any resources at the best of times, let alone to provide anything 800,000 people that sort of just crossed. They were essentially living in mud and were physically and emotionally very damaged at that stage. So we as an organisation went over there. Um, We were over there for a few months and initially the first sort of phase was treat the medical side of things. The second phase was adjusting and treating the psychological side of things because once they had actually, once they were out of pure survival, we're not talking to refugees at this this point, um, we could then address what was going on for them more psychologically and emotionally as they were dealing with the trauma and the grief of things. But what also happened was our organisation had, the way that we phased it, there were a number of different team leaders. So every couple of weeks there'd be a new team leader or a new rotation of people coming in. And the team leaders are just amazing humans. Um, (laughs) A lot of them are not really big fans of emotion or treating emotion or treating distress or mental <laughs> health <laughs> and would literally if they saw someone crying that if I was over there they could just pass them over to me <laughs> to do it. Thanks team. Um, but they're all paramedics, they're all first responders, they're all sort of so again they go in and they address the situation but the kind of uh, stuff around the edges they don't really mm-hmm. like but the reality, the reality is in order for them to do that job, they needed to be able to manage their team and their team's emotion and their team's distress and the distress of a complete stranger who came up to them mm. either very angry, very aggressive or in tears or withdrawing or crying and they had to be able to sit with that and adapt to what that situation was. So they've all been trained in this model. We call it the ACE model, um, A-C-C-E, because... You know, everyone loves acronyms. Um, and so they've all been taught, taught that and they've all been taught it and they've all actually at various times implemented it either to patients on the ground or even just to teammates. or Their own team members. members. Yeah, because it's yeah. sort of the skills that we teach are really basic skills but actually quite useful. And it's the sort of, it's the sort of thing that when you learn it, you sit there afterwards and you think this is, this is just common sense. Not really sure why anyone hasn't done this before because it actually is just common sense. But not so common. 
but not so common. Yeah. And mm. there's, you know, there's so much fear in and around emotions and dealing with emotions and all that sort of stuff. So it helps by giving people, by upskilling people in that area, it helps yeah. them to, you know, feel more confident. Um, you can't tease us with an acronym. What does A stand for? ACC. Oh. <laughs> um, assessment, assessment, communication, calm, and evaluate to evacuate. So basically, the assessment is literally an assessment of the individual, an assessment of the physical environment, and an assessment of the group. And then you teach some skills in and around communication, and that's communication um, with very different types of presentation. So, like I said, the angry, the aggressive, the violent, um, the upset. You know, not just not actually so much verbal communication, but what mm. they might, what what they implicitly need to reduce that level of distress or arousal or agitation and sort of what, what's underneath it. And then we teach them some skills in and around calming. So actual, you know, there's some breathing skills, there's some grounding skills, uh, there's some distraction things. There's, there's a whole bunch of but really, really simple, really quick tools that anyone can do anywhere but are actually quite effective. Yeah. Um, and then also some things that are kind of more scenario-specific depending on... Um, the, the context, yeah. The, the context, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then the next one is evaluate to evacuate. Now, that one was, we were trying to make it, I developed it with a paramedic, um, and so he was trying to make it align with a lot of the paramedic medical acronyms and processes and systems, but basically it helps you through the assessment that you've done and then through the techniques that you've used. You then go back and do a quick assessment and work out whether that particular person or the team itself should evacuate um, or can continue on. And a lot of that is actually not so much to do with the individual's presentation, but the impact of their distress on the team or on the group. So it kind of gives you a decision tree about what's going to be good, what, what's going to be manageable and effective for yourself and the team and what's not. And then obviously if you decide to keep the person in place, it, we teach how to like a sort of a management plan of the things that they're going to need to continue performing at their best or, you know, at a standard that they're not going to negatively impact their team. That's fascinating and, and reminds me, um, we had an incident in Afghanistan at one stage where we hit an improvised explosive device and the driver of the vehicle uh, was physically unscathed but very, very upset and um, very emotional and really it was it was having that negative effect on the group. And one of the experienced patrol commanders um, grabbed this guy and said, look, we, we need to get someone on the perimeter. There's a gap in the perimeter. We need you out there. And it was a really interesting thing in hindsight that, A, I think it gave this guy distraction. You know, it gave him a task to do and gave him something he could be in control of. But, B, it also removed a really uh, confronting sort of emotional situation from the, the centre of, of the action where medics were trying to apply first aid and, and sort of rectify this situation. And in, in hindsight, it, it was an amazing amazingly prescient thing for this patrol commander to do and sounds not dissimilar to some of the mm. things you've just mentioned. Well, and that's exactly right. And if you can get the people who have been affected, if, if you can have them perform a task, like you say, it distracts them, it gives them purpose. It also just keeps them physically, hopefully, slightly away from everything else that's going on. And it also usually means that they start to compartmentalise the emotion for a little while, um, which means you can get on with the job and then you can deal with that emotion at a time when it's less impacting on the group. 
So let's maybe talk about some of that post-traumatic intervention. Now, we've heard a lot about post-traumatic stress disorder and um, there's some some great attention, I think, getting paid to that, uh, certainly within the veteran community and the wider first responder community. Um, We're hearing less about this concept of post-traumatic growth. My my brother does a little bit of research in this and, and certainly from a lay person's perspective seems to be an example of this. Do you subscribe to this idea that that um, there are uh, bene- uh, opportunities to to grow after some of these these really traumatic events? Yeah, absolutely. It's I mean the research and science is absolutely there. It's talked mm. about less um, because it's newer than everything else to do with the research on PTSD. And in order to reach the stage where that growth can occur, you have to generally have PTSD or some degree of it, go through treatment, go through a lot of cognitive and emotional processing in and around it, Mm. start to make meaning of of what happened um, and then really actively put things into place to change the world around you. So it's a, it's, it's a really often a long process, but it's, it's very much real, very, very much real. And it's, it's interesting because there's also, this is just jumping off to the kind of extreme environment work mm. that I do. There's also a process, well, it's a similar process. It's actually called salutogenesis, which is exactly the same thing. It's just like a fancy pants word for growth after a shitty experience. Um, but, but basically <laughs> if you talk, talk to uh, extreme athletes, mountaineers, polar explorers, you know, all sorts it's through their adversity that they go through in these experiences and half of them come back, you know, with frostbite or half a leg or missing bits of their ears and all sorts. But it's after that that they, you know, a lot of them will say they don't regret it and they've learned so much either about themselves or their whole future has changed as a result of it. And that growth is exactly the same process as, uh, well, not exactly the same process, but pretty much the same process as, um, post-traumatic growth. Mm. Do, do some people do this naturally? Like you've, you've just mentioned, so that there's a lot of, um, uh, in the, the example you just mentioned, you know, a lot of uh, counselling, a lot of sort of, I, I guess, cognitive behavioural therapy type interventions that can lead to, to PTG. Do, do people sometimes just work their way through this themselves and, and come out stronger on the other side? Or is yeah, it something that we really need to guide? Look, it, it usually happens faster if you've got, or, or it happens in a potentially safer way <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> if it's sort of guided. Uh, but no, it, for a lot of people, it, it happens naturally. And in all honesty, there's been a lot of work on um, resilience and on and tra- basically trajectories of emotions after, after some sort of trauma. Um, even things, so my doctorate thesis was looking at the impact of physical trauma on emotional health and the trajectories of over the sort of 12 months. Mm-hmm. And all the research that I found, all the literature that was out there, not so much just about physical injury, but was the majority of people don't experience PTSD. The majority of people come out with what is essentially a recovery trajectory. So they will experience an impact from what they have gone through, but over time that impact naturally reduces. So there's kind of a remission in it. Some people will experience resilience, which is like they kind of, it's actually, they they only experience a few symptoms, I suppose, or a minor impact and then just kind of continue on. 
um, and then some it's, it's sort of more of a chronic uh, chronic situation that goes on but throughout evident throughout all of the research is the fact that the recovery trajectory is the most salient and uh, most common trajectory following a lot of trauma. So with that in mind, if people then are, and usually it's people who are very high functioning because they will actively seek out new activities that they can do or that their body can do even if it's got some level of disability to it or uh, that their brain, you know, if you're for people who are quite intelligent, that intelligence needs to be fed. So if they're being understimulated, they'll find a way, either destructive or constructive, but if they are a high-functioning individual who is accustomed to being very task-focused, who is accustomed to achieving things, who is accustomed to... Um, being a real participant in their life and in their world and being a real driver of it, most of the time they will hit a period of depression, some trauma, then they'll recover and then the growth goes forward. Mm. Kate, we've been talking about fear, distress, discomfort, and one of your keynote topics is leaning into that which scares you. Mm. What are the takeaways from that topic that might overcome fear, distress, discomfort? What's the toolkit? quite simply just do it the only way you overcome fear is to do what you are terrified of you can do it uh piecemeal you can do it step by step you're trying to increase your distress tolerance so your tolerance of that which you fear so ultimately you have the only thing that will reduce a level of fear is to face that fear and realize again that fear actually habituates it actually just it increases, it increases, it increases, and then it plateaus, and then it comes down. And when you face it again, it happens a little bit faster and a little bit faster. You probably never love what you feared, but avoiding it only exacerbates it. And avoidance, basically avoidance, you know, anxiety, all that sort of thing, that generalizes really, really quickly. So the best thing that you can do is the thing that you, people hate the most, which is facing and actually just actively putting yourself back in a situation. And if a situation is, you know, a danger situation, whether or not it's war or whether or not it's falling off a mountain, obviously that's not recommended to go back <laughs> and re-fall off a mountain, but it is recommended that, you know, you might climb some smaller mountains or you might go back outside or in the case of the military side of things that you don't avoid hearing information or hearing other stories about the military. Mm. It's really important that you don't avoid the people that were with you when that situation happened. You know, those are the sort of things. And then while you're doing it, basically while you're in that moment of revisited terror that is going to be overwhelming physically and emotionally, that's when you keep all the skills in, which are the kind of the breathing, the grounding. Um, and the grounding is a, there's different ways that you can do it. There's uh, a really simple kind of cognitive one is where you basically, you're, you're focusing on your environment. So you're sort of, you know, you're counting to yourself. You're identifying four things that you can see, four things that you can hear, four things that you can feel, like tactile, feel, not, not so much emotions, and then three things and then two things and then one thing. And so what that does is get you out of your head and into your surroundings. And if you're not listening to the thoughts in your head, you're not listening to, you know, 
the things that actually exacerbate. Your, your body's still going to respond, but you're you're, you're not mm. listening to the things that are going to exacerbate that anxiety. The negative self-talk and the... Yeah, yeah. and the catastrophizing and the, yep. all that sort of stuff. But the other one, the other ones I love the most, or a little bit more, because it's, it, it's all about getting out of your head, right? Because if you can cut off those thoughts, then life is so much better. Or if you can, cut, if you can cut off some of those thoughts. Um, <laughs> so there's things like some people hold ice in their hand. So again, they're focusing on, um, you know, the cold that's in their hand. So they're not listening to their thoughts. Um, or they, you know, use elastic bands and kind of slap themselves um, or flick the band on their wrist. <laughs> but the other one that I quite like, and I make people do this all the time because it's quite fun, um, is uh, apple cider vinegar. Strangely enough. Um, have uh, have either of you ever had a shot of apple cider vinegar? No, it's not on my shot list. Nope. Okay. Well, I recommend that you do because you never will again after you do. <laughs> it, it, it's basically like sucking on a lemon, right? Like you know how 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 physical that is? <laughs> how yep. your whole body just responds? Yep. Yeah. So it's, it's basically like that. And so, you, again, what you're doing is – short-circuiting your brain almost and just getting back into your body. If you imagine a two-year-old having a tantrum, what you have to do, I mean, you can't rationalise with them Mm -hmm. in any way. So you actually have, they have to calm down physically or you have to calm them down physically and then you can talk to them. And adults are the same. Like if there's something really distressing going on, if you can calm them down physically can get them out of their head and use some sort of thing so they're back in their body that will then help to calm their thoughts down so when do i take my shot of apple cider vinegar <laughs> when you're angry or when you're scared actually maybe not when you're angry because you might get angrier um, or you might get angrier at me tim would be drinking a liter and a half a <laughs> day i reckon neither of those <laughs> things ever happen i'm I, I have no apple cider vinegar in my cupboard and i seemingly have no need for it well <laughs> can we talk um breathing So we've talked uh, box breathing, combat breathing techniques on previous episodes, the breath reset that um, one of our guests, Tim Jack Adams, introduced us to, Dave Grossman's now encouraging people during critical incident stress management to bring a water bottle and take a gulp of water for the express purpose that after your gulp of water, you take a couple of breaths. Heightened anxiety and the role of breathing, what do you advocate? Slow breathing. And any sort. So basically any of the types that you mentioned are valid. You just need to slow your breathing. The faster you breathe, you're more likely to hyperventilate and that messes up obviously the volumes of carbon dioxide and oxygen. It's usually you're puffing out too much carbon dioxide. That then messes with your um, some of the physical symptoms. So that's when you get numb or your heart rate goes up, all that sort of stuff. And then your mind interprets that as more danger. And then because your mind's interpreted that as more danger, your body reacts even further. So it's like this vicious cycle. Yeah. yeah. So any slow breathing works. Um, people have different ideas, different preferences. But basically, you know, I'd always just say, you know, in for four, out for four, or in for three, yeah. out for three. Um, the, the other one that's really super effective for um, hyperventilating, this may or may not be ethical, is what we actually do. I've got a high performance company and what we often do is induce hyperventilation into people to, to basically show them the importance of slow breathing on their body or on their mind and so that they kind of believe in it. Um, 
But literally all you have to do is close somebody's mouth because if you close their mouth, if you're standing in front of them and you close their mouth, they're forced to breathe through their nose. And you really can't breathe fast if you're just breathing through your nose. So it actually, again, slow, it forces your body to slow everything down. Now, the person won't like you very much because they'll kind of initially panic a bit. But if you're there and you've got, you know, your hand on their shoulder and you're either counting with them or just talking to them slowly and everything about you has to be slow when you're talking to them, if you just close their mouth for them, they will start breathing through their nose. And as a result, everything in their body slows down. And as we know, I think it's after about four minutes after about four minutes of slow breathing that the parasympathetic nervous system kicks in. So the whole, your whole body goes out of survival mode or out of adrenaline mode and into kind of rest and recovery mode. That's very cool. And it actually accords, I find myself a lot calmer when Tim closes his mouth. So there's possibly something <laughs> in that as well. There you go, teamwork, it's great. Hey, um, Something that really caught my eye in terms of your bio, both Tim and I were spectacularly mediocre CrossFit athletes. And I note that you talk about CrossFit state of mind coaching. What does that involve? Well, a lot of it is, it's, it's, again, it's contextual. So it's applying performance psychological skills to a CrossFit environment. And that's everything from how someone approaches a competition, what's going through their mind, um, to coming back from injury and, again, what's going through their mind. It's identifying the inhibitors to their performance, which are usually mental rather than physical, and then changing those thoughts or changing those behaviours once they've understood what they are and replacing them with ones that are going to be helpful for them in achieving their goals. So I think with that one, we modularise about 10 different modules um, various skills that are used, and that's everything from mental rehearsal, which everyone calls visualization, but it's actually called mental rehearsal. Um, everything from mental rehearsal to uh, you know control, circle of control to um, learning your own. I, I, a lot of it's insight development and learning how you respond and what your negative thought patterns and automatic thought patterns are and how those thought patterns affect you emotionally, therefore that how they affect you um, physically and therefore how they affect you in terms of your performance. Yeah, Kate, staying with state of mind, you, you talk also about maintaining an elite state of mind. And in this very peculiar environment that we find ourselves in where people aren't getting the same levels of social interaction than they would in their personal and professional lives, and in particular leaders and their inability to lead in a more conventional face-to-face way, what's your advice on maintaining an elite state of mind? Do everything that's in your control to do. I mean, mechanisms that keep us sane and mechanisms that keep us performing very well are everything from food, diet, sleep, reading, um, you know, the activities that you love, more exercise, engagement where you can, good engagement, not just engagement for the sake of engagement. You know, all those things make up and, all again, all the research and literature supports this. All these make up um, a high-performing, a resilient, a high-performing person who is more likely to achieve. 
a lot of it's about knowing you and knowing what you need, you know, what keeps you sane. When you're having a bad day, what is it that's going to bring you back up? presumably or at least hopefully not drugs alcohol and a whole lot of a whole lot of other things but it's basically about really actively focusing on everything good that you can in this time control knowing that there are things that you can't and knowing that there are you know for physically active people there are huge limitations on what would typically be your coping mechanisms and huge limitations on the social engagement side of things and for some people phone and Zoom and web is, you know, almost unthinkable to kind of use because they just don't enjoy that type of communication. But it's basically about making the most of what you have access to and always remember to focus on that, focus on what you have as opposed to what has gone from your life. So, Kate, between 2014 and 2016, and I'm sure you get this question a lot, you were the resident psychologist on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Ben, have you ever heard of that show? Oh, I saw it on a bus. The side of a bus. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, it actually, it, it looks, I mean, to me, it looks like pretty good fun, but you are involved in um, the onboarding of some of those contestants and also you're debriefing them as they're coming off the show. How real is it? Um, what stresses do they experience in there? And how does it change their behaviours and outlook? Really good questions. It was, you know, it's, it's really fascinating. For me, it was really fascinating because, again, it was a context that I'd never worked in before, and that was both TV and reality TV and... <laughs> working with creatives as opposed to very task-focused individuals. The onboarding of it was quite interesting because it essentially included a whole test battery of different psychological and psychometric tests and an interview and then working out. The, the real things that we were looking for are, oh, were, is somebody going to, from my side anyway, is somebody going to be at risk of harm if they're over there? If they're, do they have any current psychological concerns that will become exacerbated by their time on that show? And so, okay, if they had some psychological concerns, just so long as they came out. I was going to say you'd be, level. <laughs> you'd be thinning out the uh, the contestant pool pretty quickly, wouldn't you? Oh, with it? Yes. <laughs> how many how many don't get through that screening process? Um, do you know what? Most of them actually get through because they've already been pre-selected. So they'd already been pre-selected and approached by the network and then they got sent to myself and to a medical doctor for the next level. And so really over the course of, um, and I actually did it for four years rather than just a, a couple of years, but over the course of the four years, there was probably only two or three that I said no to. Um, there are a few, there, there are a lot of backup people that would have been okay and then a few things came out, you know, some criminal enterprises that probably <laughs> wouldn't be great for the show and came out a little bit later, all those sort of things. Um, but there are a couple that medically, well, psychologically and medically, I couldn't, in all good faith and in all good ethics, I couldn't put them forward because they would have been at greater risk. So TV uh, don't like hearing the word no, um, and, they, and they try and 
shape the situation so that that doesn't happen very often. Um, so most of the time it was okay. Now, when we went to Africa, they were owned, the, the contestants themselves were filmed 24 hours a day. They had microphones on 24 hours a day. The only two people that they could speak to without being recorded, either mic'd up, without being mic'd up or on camera, were myself and medical doctor. So depending on each season, they worked out pretty quickly that if they needed a, a big debrief, <laughs> they could have one. Um, but then this caused also caused problems with the production side of things because, as you can imagine, production wanted content and every time someone was really upset and angry, if they came and spoke to me and then I did what Sykes do and try and calm people down and then they went back out, there was no content for the show. So, did you use the apple cider vinegar technique? I didn't have any over there. No, the, um, to be honest, most of them, there weren't really huge significant issues. It was more like everyone in a small group environment where you have no control over what's going on and you're with people that you don't necessarily like and there's nothing to do. There's literally nothing to do. And they've one of the big things is the type and the nature of the people that came on the show um, relied very heavily on social media, on their phones and on external validation. So they might, even if they were sort of comedians or um, sportsmen, they really relied on people out outside them, right, in order to kind of validate either their achievement or what was going on. And so because they didn't have access to phones, they didn't have access to any information about how they were being perceived by the audience or what was actually going on. That's a huge element of control that you've just taken taken away from them. Mm. And the other thing is they're really unaccustomed to their emotions. So this is that was probably one of the things that came out most is that mm. in the world that we live in, people are so busy all the time and distract themselves and just, you know, distract themselves with food or books or their phone or social media. So any time that there is a level of emotional discomfort, they, you know, distract themselves by looking mm. at social media or something like that. So, again, take all that away and suddenly they're dealing with all these emotions that they don't know how to deal with and they're listening to thoughts in their brain that they've never had to listen to before. And so for them, trying to make sense of all that was quite often overwhelming, particularly knowing that, you know, however they behaved was recorded, but, you know, and could have been shown to the entire world. You've, you've hit on two really fascinating points. The, the first one about that lack of external validation. And I've spoken with a number of um, psychologists who've worked on the SAS selection course, and they talk a lot about the internal locus of control and people who are reliant on external stimuli like the star athletes or the, the hothouse flowers that get to the selection course, all of a sudden they're in this silent running sort of environment where they're not getting that feedback, often positive or negative, um, mm. and they can crumple. But the second one, I, I really am interested in that concept about just being bored we talked recently with a guy called David Olney, who's a, a complexity scientist amongst many other things, and he reflected on exactly that same thing, that uh, in this COVID lockdown environment, um, you know, stand fast Netflix, but a lot of people are just sitting there and reflecting, and, and it's actually a positive thing. Mm, and it is, and it used to be, uh, if, if, there's actually a lot of work that shows daydreamers have, uh, daydreamers really creative really reflective and have good mental health. Um, 
And it's skills that we used to have, but because our world has become so, so busy and so, so full over the last kind of 10, 15 years, we've stopped doing that. So I think for a lot of people having the chance to do that, while it's uncomfortable to some degree because it's unusual or unfamiliar, it's actually really good for them. Um, so, and in one more thing actually on their internal locus of control, I, I do some work with, again, with sort of in extreme environments and some research looking at who succeeds in survival situations or in extreme environments if it's, you know, polar exploring or, or whatever it is. And the ones who are most likely to succeed are the ones who have a greater internal locus of control and actually t- typically tend to be a little bit more introverted and can deal quite comfortably with low degrees of external stimulation. Mm. Whereas, whereas very highly extroverted people um, who rely not just on the physical environment to stimulate them but, you know, other people and other situations, they tend to struggle a lot more when you take away everything or have to focus on, you know, white in front of you for the next 73 days. Yeah. And look, exactly that same correlate with successful um, selection course candidates. Mm. Dr. Kate, we often finish our podcast with a little session section called Quick Questions, Quick Answers. Full disclaimer, neither tend to end up very quick, but are you ready for a few rapid-fire questions? Sure, hit me with it. What is the most beautiful place on earth that you've been to? <laughs> oh, South Africa. More detail? Um, there is a particular place called Maripskop. It's south of the Kruger, just south of the Kruger, and it's just some, I think it just means Hill of Marie or something like that. Mm-hmm. Just a beautiful, uh, beautiful mountain. And, and it, every time you got there, everything is wild and blue and stunning and you're above the clouds and it's really easy to get to. It's just I've had a lot of really positive times there as well. So I think what's mixed in in that is how it feels for me as much as what it looks like. Indoor rock climbing or outdoor rock climbing? Outdoor in a heartbeat. What's your power song? Oh, very good question. I don't think I have one. Is that terrible? Well, if you want to get on the Unforgiving 60 playlist on Spotify, you <laughs> yeah. need to have one. <laughs> we can take it on notice if you, if you can't. can't All right, I'll, work, I'll work on that for next time. <laughs> right. Slippers, slippers or stilettos? Or sticky boots? I was going to say sneakers, but then you would have taken that option, so I'm removing that option from the equation. What are sticky boots? Rock climbing shoes. Oh, okay. Never heard them call that. Can I have um, one on one shoe and one on one shoe, one on one, one on the other? <laughs> You'd be a bit lopsided <laughs> and you'll be on a one-way ticket to a podiatrist, but sure. I, I want to know where you're going with an Ugg boot and a Manolo Blahnik. <laughs> <laughs> well, the world is full of adventures. <laughs> well, you're obviously clearly going in two different directions. <laughs> Kate, are you hopeful for the world? I have, I actually have an inherent optimism within me, although I think humans are a very self-destructive race. What's one thing that everyone should do? 
a rock climb mm-hmm. and drink apple cider vinegar. Well, mm-hmm. rock climbing. <laughs> While well, rock climbing, you <laughs> might fall off the wall. <laughs> but then you can apply all these other new skills and you'll be fine. And then you can, <laughs> over time, develop post-traumatic growth. This is where the, the questions cease to become quick, but I'm really interested. Why rock climbing? Is it something about doing something that scares you? No, it's actually the only sport that I've ever participated in that I'm 100% immersed and focused on it without my over-racing brain getting in the way. So you get the immediate feedback of if you start thinking about something when you're on the rock, you'll fall off. But it's also, it's really kinesthetic. It's it's your body and your soul and your mind and your intellect all working together and it has to be aligned. And the the other part is I love being outdoors. So if I can go rock climbing for a day, not only am I exhausted and sleep really well, I've just spent a day with most likely some completely rogue other climber because climbing is kind of, you know, anarchy in itself, um, but just in a beautiful environment. So it, it, it sort of, it's body and soul for me, it's a combination. What's getting you through lockdown at the moment? Projects. Projects mm. that I will inevitably never earn me any money, but I'm really interested in and I keep going down little rabbit holes of things that I can create and develop. You recommended poems or books? Recommended poems, well, a poem that's been very salient recently, and this is going to put a bit of a downer on it, is the one by... Mary Elizabeth Fry, you know the one that says, do not stand at my grave and weep, I am not there, I do not sleep. I had a close friend die a couple of weeks ago and I think that uh, epitomises the impact that she had and that that kind of epitomises my beliefs in her own death. But on a more positive note, there's a book called Wild and Elemental Journey and it's by an author called Jay Griffiths and I think if you love words and if you love poetry and if you love the outdoors, it's an incredibly powerful book, but just beautiful. Her use of language is just exquisite. And she's often talking about nature and uh, the dichotomies of emotion in nature and things as well. So definitely worth a read. And my last question, what's your guilty pleasure? Oh, chocolate. <laughs> my last question, what is your next place to visit? This is a little bit trickier given COVID. <laughs> <laughs> I feel there might not be many. No, the, um, I'm supposed to be climbing Amadablam uh, in Nepal in November and also going on an Arctic trip in January. So depending on what lockdown rules are, it could be either of those or none of those. Uh, but we'll see. I reckon your answer to that question proves that you are indeed leading a life less ordinary, which is the the prerequisite for for being on this show. Kate, thank you very much for your time. It's been awesome to chat. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Kate.
Now to the debrief. We strive for continuous improvement and greatly appreciate your insights and feedback. Also, if you know someone who is living that life less ordinary, please tell us. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow and engage with us on social media. Just search for Unforgiving 60 on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on the Unforgiving 60.